Once more, welcome to you. Welcome to all of you at the Franklin campus. Pastor Eric, you're my brother. I love you. God bless you all. Open your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament. Starting a new sermon series this morning entitled, Blessed are the Poor. Blessed are the Poor. As I stand here preaching this morning, my DVD recorder at home is running. My family knows that this is another way that I am weird. I record all of the Sunday morning news shows, those political shows. I am a, I'm a political junkie. I'm very involved in politics. Uh, I love to pray and to ask God to bless our nation and its leaders. I follow politics actually very closely. I'm recording Fox News Sunday. I'm recording this week with whatever her new name is, Christiana Manapur, something like that, uh, new lady on ABC. I record all of those. And when I'm finished preaching at the end of Sunday night, my family goes to bed and I go home and I just watch those shows till 12 o'clock, one in the morning. That's one of the ways I'm weird. Uh, I, I really do care about politics. I, I follow the politics of our government very, very closely and carefully. But I want you to understand something up close. Typically in my preaching, I do not bring my politics into, into the pulpit. And we can talk about that on another time. My reasoning is when it comes to what Scripture teaches about the things that matter to God, I can't always draw a straight line from the Bible to either platform of any political party. Do you understand? I don't see a straight line drawn to the Democratic Party, and I don't see a straight line drawn to the Republican Party. And so I will never stand in this pulpit and act like one party or the other represents well what God wants for the world and for our country. But when I start preaching a sermon like blessed are the poor, I understand that all of a sudden I start sounding a, a certain way. Some of the words that we'll find in scripture and some of the words that I will use in my preaching in the next few Sundays, you're going to think these are political code words and I must be sending a signal or I must be on one side or the other. And if that's the way your brain works, you're, you're going to need help. Because I'm not using political code words. I'm not trying to suggest or say anything about your favorite political party. That is not my way. I want us to come back to scripture and I want us to recover something very, very important about our obligation as God's people. And one of the things very, very clear in scripture from Old Testament to New Testament is that God takes very, very seriously the way that we treat the poor. Very, very close to God's heart are the cries of the poor. And therefore we have an obligation obligation to be a blessing to the poor, even as God himself says, blessed are the poor. So do not, please do not try to read between the lines of what I'm saying. I'm bringing us back to scripture and I want us to take very, very seriously. And whether or not these messages fit your politics, I hope that by the end of the time we've read God's word, it will fit the way you understand your obligation as a Christian. So second Thessalonians chapter 3 is, is where we'll, we will be. This particular sermon has a weird title. I, I called it Government Cheese. Anybody old enough to remember Government Cheese? Y'all remember that? Awesome. I love preaching to old people. That's nice. Government Cheese, government cheese was, was a part of the 80s and a part of, of my growing up years. If you recall, for some reason back in the early 80s, all the way up into the 90s, I believe, the government seemed to have extra cheese laying around. Now, I can't explain that. I don't understand why they had all of this cheese. But they started giving it away to people who were on welfare or senior adults, elderly folks. This is where my family comes in. My grandma Pearson started picking up government cheese like it was going out of style. 
She just started picking it up. I reckon they gave it out at the AARP. Is that where she was getting it? My grandma would just pick it up at the AARP by the armloads. And these are enormous blocks of cheese. I mean, like this long. Y'all remember? Like this long and this square. These are gigantic, gigantic blocks of actually really, really good cheese. Really good cheese. My grandma just started getting it, and she couldn't possibly eat it all. She was just one lady. So she started giving it to all of the family. Every single time she'd go to AARP, she'd come back with an armload of government cheese and hand it out. Now, we love this. My family's cheese intake increased dramatically. But as you probably know, cheese does have certain effects on human digestion and excretion. And so there reached a point where we just had to say, Grandma, no more welfare cheese, no more government cheese. We can't take, you, you cannot live on just cheese. And we were doing that for a while. Honestly, at that point growing up, it's really one of the first times I really thought about people who really were dependent upon charity, really dependent upon the government, perhaps. And just as I quickly realized that my family couldn't live on just cheese, it made me sort of wonder about the people that apparently the government thought could live on just cheese. Do you understand what I'm saying? For me, it always takes something to really have me consider the plight of poor people because honestly, I've never been poor. Some of you have been. I know that you have. Some of you would say that you have been. Some of you would say that you are. But honestly, if you're saying that today, you really don't know what you're talking about. But please just stop. Because most of us really have never been poor. Now, I've never been rich either. I grew up in a very modest house. Both of my parents always worked. They worked full time. My parents were factory workers. Usually my mother worked third shift most of my life. My mother would get up and go to work at 10.30 at night and come home at 7 o'clock. My parents worked hard, and that was the way we grew up. We never had everything, but we always had enough. I always went to the doctor when I was sick. Never in my life have I not been able to go to the doctor when I was sick. We've always had food, always had clothes, always had a place to live, always had school supplies, always had everything that we ever needed. So honestly, let me say up front, there are things about poverty I will never understand. And I'm willing to admit that. I hope that you are. That honestly, some of the things about being poor, some of us will never ever understand. Because even though we've never had everything we've wanted, we've typically had everything that we've needed. So many, many of us, for all of our talking about it, we really don't know a lot about poverty. And so when it comes to thinking about the poor or helping the poor, honestly, we don't know much about that either. So I want us to come back to what Scripture says. Come back to some basic principles about about God's will and what God wants for the world and what God wants for the poor. Since tomorrow is Labor Day at this moment of my preaching, tomorrow is Labor Day, let's begin by talking about work. And we'll begin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, begin with verse 6. You won't believe what this says. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask you to feed us, but we wanted to give you an example to follow. 
Even while we were with you, we gave you this command, those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn your living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, don't ever get tired of doing good. Take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they will be ashamed. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or sister. Okay, some of you like that a lot. So let's come right down and let's talk about what this says. First off, Paul is writing a letter. Don't forget that. The the book of 2 Thessalonians is, is a letter that Paul wrote to a real church, real people in a place called Thessalonica. So Paul didn't sit down when they say, I'm going to write a book of the Bible. He's not self-consciously writing a book of the Bible. We know that the Holy Spirit is inspiring him. So what Paul wrote to Thessalonica still applies to our lives. That's the wonder of God's word in Scripture. But remember, when Paul writes, he's writing to Thessalonica, and he's trying to address real problems that they were having in that real church. So, So let's dig in right there. What do you think the problem is? Can you read between the lines? It's pretty obvious that in this church, you have some people who've just stopped working. They've just stopped working. Now, let's be very, very clear. These are able-bodied people. These are people who could be expected to work and are fully physically able of working, doing something to earn their own way. These are able-bodied people. In this scripture and in everything I say from this point on about work, I'm talking about able-bodied people. I know that there are some of you right now in this house and you would love to work. You would love nothing more than to be able to do what you used to do or what you've always done. And you are no longer physically able to work like that. And God bless you. This scripture is not talking to you and I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking about people who are not physically capable of working. That's not the issue that Paul's addressing. We're talking about able-bodied Christian people who for one reason or another have just decided not to work. They don't have to work. And the only way they can do that is the way that the early church was structured. And honestly, the way every church should be structured. The churches that Paul establishes were churches built on certain principles. And one of the bedrock spiritual principles was generosity. It continues to be a bedrock spiritual principle of the body of Christ, the people of God. We're generous people. Generosity is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you're going to be a generous person. You're going to love to give, and you're going to love to share what you have. It's just part of being a Christian. It's part of having the Holy Spirit. We're generous people. We love to give, and we're going to be people of compassion and people of love, which means if there's somebody who has a need, we're going to go and and move freely and gladly to help them. That's just part of being a Christian. Are you following me? It's fundamental. And these are the kinds of churches that Paul knew, and this is what makes a church a church. We're the people of God. We're the people of God. And so the things that breaks God's heart are going to be the same things that break our hearts. And people in need break the heart of God. And people in need would break the heart of God's people in Paul's day. Generous people of compassion who want to serve God and take care of the needy. 
But understand, when you've got a culture of generosity, when you've got a culture of people who want to help and want to take care of needy people, when you have an entire group of people like that, there may always be those who want to take advantage of that. And this is what Paul is facing in Thessalonica. He's talking about able-bodied people who've decided, hey, I've noticed something about the people I go to church with. They will give you the shirt off of their back. So why should I keep buying shirts? That's how their minds work. There are people at church who always, anytime you go to their house, they got lots of food. And every time you visit, they'll say, sit down here, eat with us. So, so why should I buy groceries? This is how their brains are working. If the church is so generous, and if everybody's going to give, and if everybody's so willing to take care of the poor, hey, I'll just be poor because I'll be well cared for in the church. This is honestly what's going on. And so Paul established very, very firm principles to understand he never, ever relieves God's people of the responsibility of being generous. And he never, ever relieves them of the responsibility of taking care of the needy. Paul never does that. And the scripture cannot be used to erase the compassion that God's people have for the poor. But Paul also set up another principle for the church, for people inside the body of Christ. And it's really rather simple. Paul simply teaches and always taught that a person unwilling to work should not eat. A person who is not willing, a physically able person who is not willing to take care of himself or herself, they should not look for somebody else to take care of them. This is Paul's principle. And honestly, it's a rather fundamental principle, and it should be something we take seriously as people of compassion and generosity. We are never asked or obligated to do for somebody else what they can and should be doing for themselves. Work is a way of life, and it is a good way of life, and it is for everybody. And I know what you're thinking. Brother Tim, it's easy for you to say you only have to work on Sunday. Um, Honestly, I know most of you don't think that. Some of you probably do. Uh, I, I work. I work just like you. Maybe you don't understand my job. What I'm doing right now in front of you is really the smallest part of what, of what I do as a pastor. So, so understand, I work, and I work hard, and I really try to work hard. Honestly, I love to work hard. My wife gets on me because, honestly, I can go for a full day, and I may never, ever sit down. I may never stop working. It's kind of another way that I'm weird. I really, really enjoy working. But understand, Paul sort of sets that same example. In that verse 8, when Paul talks about his own example, where he says, we worked hard day and night, so we would not be a burden to any of you. What you probably can't see in that translation is Paul actually piles up the verbs. He uses three different verbs there just to say that, to talk about the way he worked. He used three different words for work in that little sentence. The first word for work had to do with accomplishing something. And honestly, in our lives, it is a good way of life. It is good to get up in the morning and by the time you go to bed that night, it's good to have accomplished something. And I'm telling you, watching the price is right is not accomplishing anything. Keeping up with your soap operas, that is not accomplishing anything. The word that Paul uses, the first word to describe his example, is a word for work that means getting something done. 
And honestly, everybody is created for a purpose. And every single day, if God gives you breath in your lungs and strength in your bones, he has something for you to do, something for you to accomplish. And for you to waste even a single day of your life, to simply waste a day and get nothing done, honestly, is a tragedy, a tragic waste of your life. Why wouldn't you want to get something done? Paul's first word is about getting something done. The second word he uses here to talk about his working day and night is a really extreme word. It's more extreme than the first word, and it has to do with physical exhaustion. It has to do with back-breaking kind of work. And Paul is describing the way he lived every day. And one of the words he uses is a word for work that talks about physical exertion. Extreme physical exertion, back-breaking, blood and sweat kind of work. That's the second word he uses. The third word he uses is the strongest word for work that was available in his language. And that word means to work to the point of physical limits. To do absolutely all he could possibly accomplish physically. And Paul says, this is how I live day and night and this is the example I left for you. I didn't really expect any amens there. But work is a way of life. And honestly, it's a good way of life. There's nothing in the world like being tired after you've worked hard. Because honestly, that's being tired when you've earned it. You've earned that good night's rest. And honestly, you've earned the food that you eat. And this is what Paul is saying. Everyone is supposed to work. If you're physically capable of working, you work. That is the way Christians live. It's the way we live. We work. Because we don't want to be a burden on anybody else. Everything it requires to keep you alive costs money, if your mama never told you. Everything it requires to keep you alive costs money. It costs somebody. And Paul is saying, in your life, you should pay your own way. You should somehow support yourself. You should be raising, earning whatever it takes to feed your belly, to keep your body clothed, to keep a roof over your head. That's God's way. And it's a fundamental principle. It's what Paul teaches to this church that is so full of generosity and compassion. He teaches them not to do for other people what they should be doing for themselves. It's pretty much tough love here. Tough love. He says, don't treat them like enemies. Don't hate them. Don't be mean to them. Treat them like brothers and sisters, but warn them that this is no way to live. No way to live. So we're saying it's a simple principle. Everybody should work. And everybody should work hard. And everybody should earn their own living. So what does that say for us? Honestly, some of us love that because that makes us feel like we don't ever have to help people. If there are poor people out there, they should just work. And if there are people who don't have enough, maybe they should work harder and work more. And honestly, that's the way a lot of us think. They ought to just work. I work, they should work. And you're in some ways using a principle that's biblical. Absolutely. Everybody should work. And one of the things we have to say right up front is that there are some people in the world who are poor because they will not work or will not work hard enough. That is a fact. Everybody would have to agree to that. And honestly, those who will not work and can work, they should not be looking for other people to support them. That's not what Scripture teaches. That is not a way for anybody to live. It is not glorifying to God, and it is beneath human dignity. 
everybody should work. And some people are poor because they will not work or won't work hard enough. I've said that now. Now let's say something else. I think it is a natural principle that flows from this scripture. And it is this. People who do work and who work hard, they ought to be able to provide for their families. People who work hard, people who work, they ought to be able to provide for their families. It is a Christian obligation. Notice what Scripture says from the book of 1 Timothy. Help me out, Riley. The Scripture from 1 Timothy says, Those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. That that word provide, it has to do with thinking ahead, sort of looking down the road. You know that your family's going to need clothes. You know that the electric bill is going to have to be paid next week. And anybody who will not plan ahead and look down the road and work and provide for their family, Scripture says these folks are worse than pagans. It is no way to live. We are obligated to work and provide for our families. It's an obligation. So understand the flip side of that. People who do work and work hard, they really ought to be able to provide for their families. But that is not the case. Those of you who may be thinking that the simple answer to poverty is is everybody should just go to work, you're not really understanding that the culture in which we live these days you probably don't understand that the most recent estimate is that there are 4.2 million families, 4.2 million families in the United States who work and remain in poverty. They work hard. You understand, a third of those people who are below the poverty line in our world today, in the United States, a third of those who live in poverty work full time. Are you listening to me? They do work. They're busting it just like you, but they are not able to work themselves out of poverty. And this is a moral problem. It's a moral outrage. You just got to stop and understand how the world has changed. And maybe you really haven't thought some of these things through. But are you not paying attention to the way the job market is changing? Do you not understand that there are fewer and fewer jobs for a person who doesn't have an education or who doesn't have any skills? Well, they can just go work at McDonald's. Of course they can. But do you know what McDonald's pays? And do you possibly think that a person could could support his household on what McDonald's pays? There simply are not enough jobs that pay a living wage. There are not enough ways for a person without skills to go out and make enough money to support a family. And that is something that really ought to concern us. This is where we as the people of God have to begin to recover a heart of compassion for people, honestly, who are never, ever going to be able to work themselves out of this predicament that they're in. There are not jobs enough that pay enough for a young man who's dropped out of high school. So listen to me, teenagers. There simply are not jobs enough that pay enough for a young girl who's pregnant and has no man in her house. You understand the leading cause of poverty, one of the leading indicators is a single mom. The majority of households in poverty are led by a woman alone with children. Well, there you go again, Brother Tim. There you go. It's the choices they make. They deserve the consequences of their own behavior. And I I understand that. I'm with you there. Other people are in poverty because of the choices they make. 
They're addicts, of course, to drugs or, or alcohol. They made a choice to get pregnant. They made a choice to drop out of school. They've made their bed. Now let them lie in it. I, honestly, is that what you're going to say? Is that what you're going to say? Let me give you another verse from the book of Proverbs. Notice what the Word of God says, and let this verse sink in with you. The godly care about justice for the poor. The wicked don't care at all. That's the only verse I gave you today. Where would you have to classify yourself? Do you care at all? Do you care at all? That there really are single moms out there who really do work. They work just as hard as you do. But honestly, they will never make enough. Never make enough to lift their children out of poverty. You care about that? Do you care that there really are people who once were just as well off as you, but because of medical emergencies or other some sort of catastrophe, they lost it all. And now they are homeless or or poor. And honestly, they've always worked just as hard as you, but the bottom fell out for them. Do you ever stop and think about them? It's real easy to blame people for being in in the the situation that they're in, but, but honestly, you've got to open your eyes a bit and let God open your eyes. Brother Tim, I don't know why you're preaching this. I think you should just preach salvation. I think you should just preach the gospel. What you must understand is this is the gospel. When Jesus himself stepped foot into the synagogue that day, and the very first day he read scripture, he opened up to a particular verse, and the verse he read was, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. First words out of his mouth. First sermon Jesus preached. I've come to preach good news to the poor. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's spiritual poor. He's talking about the spiritual poor. Of course you think he's talking to the spiritual poor because you're not poor. You listening to me? You're not poor. Jesus was. Jesus was. There's a little detail in Scripture about when Mary and Joseph went to dedicate Jesus at the temple. Notice that Scripture because it says that Mary and Joseph brought an offering with them to the temple that day. What did they bring? Two birds. Two birds. What was the prescribed offering for dedicating a a, a baby boy to God, do you know? It was a lamb. Unless you were too poor to afford a lamb, in which case you brought birds. I have a feeling when Jesus says, I've come to preach good news to the poor, he meant poor. I think he knew poor people. I think he walked among poor people. I think he wanted to preach good news to them. It's a part of the gospel. Because the gospel teaches us of a God who loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. So that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it's not just life in eternity that God cares about. He cares about the life that we live right now. If he didn't care about that, the moment you're saved, he'd take you on up to heaven. He cares about this life. He cares deeply. So the gospel teaches us of a God who responds with his whole being to all of our need, to the whole of our need. And yes, our spiritual needs are our greatest needs. My need for forgiveness and grace and spiritual deliverance is always the greatest need, just like with you and everybody else, all of us sinners in need of forgiveness. But God is not only concerned with spiritual needs, he's also concerned with your emotional needs and your physical needs. 
response. God responds with the whole of his being to the whole of your need. Jesus stepped up on the mountain that day and he said, Blessed are the poor. And I rather believe he meant it. He wanted it to be so. Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about three acts of righteousness. Three acts of righteousness. And these are things that Jesus says everybody should do personally. And everybody should do privately. And these are three things that Jesus says that God always rewards. Three acts of righteousness in Matthew chapter 6. So I want to give these to you and ask you to make these a part of your life at least for the next few weeks. And I want you to direct these things toward your life in relationship to the poor. The first one, the very first act of righteousness Jesus names is giving to the poor. Very first act of righteousness Jesus names, give to the poor. And Jesus says, when you give to the poor, don't make a show of it. Don't do it in such a way where everybody knows what you're doing. Do it in such a way where your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand does. But notice Jesus assumes you're going to be giving to the poor. His real concern is the attitude with which you do it. But it is an act of righteousness that Jesus assumes you will participate in. So I'm asking you in the next few weeks, in the course of these sermons, I want you to give something to the poor. Think about what you can give. Well, Brother Tim, I don't have anything extra. Okay, whatever you can give to the poor. Every Friday, the Salvation Army serves lunch, and they always see somebody to help scoop potatoes. Why don't you go and help serve food one day? You can do that. Well, I'm a student. Why don't you make sure that everybody in your class has school supplies? You can do something. Everybody can give something. I want you to think about what you can give. It's an act of righteousness, and Jesus assumes that this is going to be in your heart. So I want to ask you to really consider what you can give and ask you to give to the poor. Okay. The second act of righteousness Jesus names is prayer. Jesus assumes that we will all pray, that we will pray privately, that we will pray sincerely and earnestly, that we will go into our closet and pray and God will see us in secret and God will reward us for our praying. So I'm going to ask you to pray and I'm asking you to pray for the poor. I want you to pray for two specific things. As a church, we're going to pray together. I want you to pray that God will help you to see them, to to see the poor. I want you to pray that God will help you see the needs of people around you, all kinds of needs, all kinds of people, that you'll have eyes to see the poor. And I want you to pray one more thing, and we're going to talk about this a lot next week. I want you to pray that God will help you to be a friend to the poor. Okay? Pray that God will help you see the poor and that you will be a friend to the poor. Pray that God will make you a friend to the poor. The third act of righteousness that Jesus names is fasting. Jesus assumes that his people, his children, will fast. He assumes that that will be a part of our lives, and we can talk about that more later too. But understand, I want to call you to fast. That means to go without food for some period of time. Now, you're going to have to perhaps consider your own health concerns, your own able-bodiedness, but I want to ask you to fast. In two weeks, weeks, we're going to have Hunger Sunday. Perhaps that day you'll fast with me from Saturday noon till Sunday noon and we'll come to church hungry. I want to ask you to do that with me. Or maybe in the next few weeks you would consider just skipping a meal and skip that meal and whatever that meal would have cost you, whether at home or out at a restaurant, why don't you give that money to the poor? Something like that. You'll also notice in the bulletin that we're collecting food this month. Why don't we take that hunger Sunday and why don't we fill up, I mean fill up, the vestibule with food. I don't mean you bring in a can. Why don't you consider buying a case of food? Why don't you fill up a truckload? 
Some of you can do it. And there are people who need the food. Why don't you fast? Why why don't you do without? Use that time to share your bread with the hungry. That's what scripture says we do. I'm asking you to give to the poor. I'm asking you to pray for the poor. I'm asking you to fast for the poor. Let's come back to what Scripture says and what Scripture means when it says, blessed are the poor. Something tells me that God expects us to be a blessing to those who are poor. Pray with me. God, we gathered around a symbolic table this morning and shared symbolic food, a a, a crust of bread, a, a drink of juice, hardly enough to tide us over. And yet, Lord, today, as I pray, I am standing in front of a table with more food on it than some people would see all day, perhaps all week. At the end of this day, we are likely to throw out more bread than some families would have to share today. God, there's something wrong with us when we can continue to hoard, continue, Lord, to spend on ourselves, to have so much, and care so little for those who have none. God, we know that your great heart continues to move out toward the whole world. And we know, Lord, that today you're listening to the cries of the poor. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have your heart, to learn to see the needs of those around us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn once more how to care. Lord Jesus, help us to love, help us to care. We pray in your holy name. Amen.